to where Starting in verse 1, we find, He entered Jericho and was passing through. And there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. He was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small of stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him. For he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they grumbled. They all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restored it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come before your all-powerful and most gracious presence to give thanks for you for the many wonderful benefits that we have received through your goodwill toward us. We praise you for your unmatched character and, you, and for the fact that you excel, as the psalmist says, in doing mighty deeds for others. No being in heaven, although you have graced them with glory, can compare to your glory. And no being on earth can even approach the fringes of your glory. It's with this in mind that we humbly request yet again that you help us to hear from you today that your great and generous spirit would speak through a human being, that he would convict hearts, that he would change the direction of human lives, that he would save the lost. And Lord, I do pray that you restrain any forces of evil from influencing anything done here today. May Jesus be lifted high. May people be drawn to him. May people marvel at your great glory, the true and living God who saves. We ask these things in the awesome and great name of Jesus, who is the Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So it was during the days of Ezekiel the prophet that God made a promise to come. And God made this promise because the leaders who had been entrusted to shepherd the people had failed to do their job. They did not guide the people as God intended, nor did they care for the people as God intended. But they took advantage of the people. And so God promised to take on the role himself to shepherd the people of Israel. And then at the end of the chapter, God promised he would ultimately set over them the Messiah who would be a faithful leader and who would fulfill what God's intention was for his people. We find this in Ezekiel chapter 34. Now the question becomes, how would God fulfill these two great promises that he would come and shepherd and at the same time place the Messiah to be over them? And we see in the ministry of Jesus the answer to this question as God the Son 
would come to take on the role of the Messiah and fulfill God's divine mission to shepherd the people of Israel. He would come to seek and to save the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as he said in John's gospel, not only those sheep would he bring, but that there are other sheep which were from the nations that he would bring so that there would be one fold and one shepherd. And so Jesus came seeking and saving the lost. And as a result of Jesus' divine mission to fulfill what God had promised so long ago and to accomplish that mission, we have the examples of different people's lives who were impacted by Jesus in which he was able to change the lives of unworthy sinners. Last week we looked at the life of a woman and which resulted in an uh, expression of gratitude. This week we look at the life of a man and he is going to have a different expression. Uh, that is going to let us have another window into what a changed heart will produce in a life that has been affected by God's gracious salvation. In order to see the significance of the text that I want to cover today, I want to review what Luke has placed before it, because I believe that by looking at that, we will see Zacchaeus' story more clearly as the elements and ideas in which he uh, layers up, if I will, to get to Zacchaeus' story becomes relevant because they all play into what we understand to be happening between Jesus and Zacchaeus. And this, of course, is a salvation story. So if you have your Bible, just look back at chapter 18 near the beginning. I'm not going to read the passages, but I'll summarize what's happening in each section as we walk up to Zacchaeus. In verses 9 through 14, you'll there, if you look in your Bible, you'll see that there's a parable that Jesus tells about two men. One is a Pharisee. We might describe him, as we've described before, as a businessman who happens to be devout in his religion, in his Jewish faith. The other, a tax collector, a businessman as well. However, the prevailing thought of the day was that he was a businessman uh, known to be unscrupulous in his seeking to gain wealth for himself through taking advantage of others. Both men went up to do something noble. They went to pray to God. And Jesus gives a surprising twist to the end of the story. It is the tax collector and not the Pharisee that God answers his prayer. The reason why, as Jesus explains in the text, is because the Pharisee comes confident in his own righteousness. Here, righteousness is portrayed as two kind of things. For the Pharisee, it's some moral achievements that he's made in life compared to others and some faithfulness to certain religious activities. And confidence in that is how he approaches God. The tax collector makes no claim to either, probably because as Jesus wanted to convey, the, the tax collector didn't have that to rely upon. So when he comes, simply recognizing his sin and depending upon God's mercy. And the point is that confidence in our righteousness will not be approved by God be it religious activity or some moral achievement we're able to have in life. And what trips up the Pharisee, I have found, has also tripped up sometimes those who attend church. Over my years of ministry and having to chance an opportunity in various churches in various locations in different cities to sit down and talk with people about their faith and entering the kingdom of God, I have found that in a moment of transparency, that sometimes as people began to talk about what they believe will get them into the kingdom, what inevitably comes out is that they're relying upon their own righteousness. 
And what I mean by that is in the form like the Pharisee, they mentioned some level of morality that they've attained in life or their faithfulness to some church activity as the means by which they believe they will be able to enter the kingdom of God. But that will not help them. What the parable is saying is that we must have confidence in God's mercy and see our need for it. Following this account, we find another account, verses 15 through 17. It's an event that almost seems unrelated, but it's related. And it deals with the fact of people bringing their children to Jesus to be blessed as the prophet of God. And Jesus uses the children to illustrate something that's true about the kingdom in light of what Luke has already presented to us as he builds upon his argument. And it's simply this, that like a small child, and here a small child has an infant to a toddler age person in mind. Like a small child like that, trust in a parent, so must you also trust likewise in God if you're to enter the kingdom. No trust, no entrance. Luke then gives us a real-life illustration of how this plays out in a real person's life of someone who encounters Jesus. This person happens to be a man who's a ruler. He has a position in society, and he's extremely wealthy. And he comes to Jesus seeking eternal life. From the other text, he is small of stature here with reference to his age, most likely he's somewhere under 40 years old. Perhaps he's in his 30s, perhaps even in his late 30s. We don't know, but he might just be a Pharisee. And he seeks Jesus out because he wants to enter the kingdom. He wants to be saved. He wants eternal life. And so he asks Jesus, how might he attain this in his life? And so Jesus levels the requirement or lays out the requirement for anyone to enter the kingdom. You have to be righteous. And the way that Jesus portrays that is he references all the commands that God gave to Moses that have to do with relating to other people. And surprising to us, the young man says to him, well, when I look back to my youth up to this day, I've tried to keep or sought to keep all those commands. I've kept them since I've been a child. From the other gospels, we find out that Jesus then probes his heart out of love, to find out whether or not what's in his heart is that which we think might be in his heart. And so Jesus does that as God does, as we see throughout the Old Testament, that when God wants to reveal what's in a human heart, though he knows it, he puts humans to the test. And so Jesus puts him to the test, and he asks him to do something that probably all of us would cringe at. He says to him, hey, listen, I see that you look to be a very wealthy man, what I want you to do is sell everything that you own. I want you to take the revenue that you gain from it. I want you to give all of that away to the poor. And then afterwards, I want you to come and become my disciple. We notice in the text that the young man ultimately does not accept Jesus' offer to a discipleship relationship. And we find out that there is an emotional response that happens in the text with this young man. He's grieved. He's sad about the test that Jesus places before him because of his great possessions. He's unwilling to re release them. 
Because what Jesus' test does is reveal what's really going on in his heart. There seems to be, in light of what we've already seen, there's dependence upon his own righteousness and an attachment to his world's goods and possessions. And thus, because of his dependence upon this world's goods and possessions, he's unable to respond to God even when offered heavenly reward in the place. After this conversation, Jesus seizes upon a moment to teach his disciples a valuable lesson about humanity. And he says, from a human perspective, it is impossible for a person who has the wealth of this world to enter the kingdom of God. This is, of course, shocking to the disciples because the prevailing thought of the day was that if you were rich as a Jew, you were blessed by God. And if blessed by God, then how is it that the one who has been blessed by God would not be able to enter the kingdom of God? So the disciples asked, if he can't get in, then who can? And Jesus says, what's impossible for human power to accomplish is not beyond God's power. God can do what humans cannot. He can even save those who are rich. And then in verses 31 through 34, we find there the way that God will do the impossible and what it is that men must ultimately rely on if they are to have God's mercy and be saved. He relates the way that sin is going to be removed, which keeps people out of the kingdom, the way that righteousness will be given so that men might enter the kingdom, the way righteousness will be lived out in life by the gift of the Spirit and how God will restore a relationship with the Father and the Son by the Spirit, which Jesus defines as what is the nature of eternal life. It would all be done through Jesus' death and resurrection from the dead. Finally, we see in the text as we began to watch Luke's argument build up is an example of what faith looks like. As Jesus approaches the city of Jericho, which was a wealthy city at that point, there is a crowd that comes out to greet Jesus. No, uh, not unlikely because of the fact they have now heard about Jesus' mighty miracles in ministry in all these other cities. And finally, he's come to their city and they don't want to miss an opportunity to see what Jesus might do. And so the people crowd around him. But as he's preparing to enter the city, at least in Luke's gospel, it comes out that there happens to be a man who has no value in society. He's a blind man. He's a beggar. And he's sitting by the way of the road. And he hears by the commotion in the crowd that someone important has come to town. Who is it? It is Jesus, the great prophet, the Messiah, the son of David. And so he cries out, Jesus, son of David, Messiah, that is, have mercy upon me. Help me. And the people say to him in the crowd, quiet down. Jesus has more important things to do than to deal with the likes of you. But the man refuses. The more they tell him to quiet, the louder he gets. Because he refuses to allow this opportunity to pass him by. And so because he makes such ruckus, Jesus hears, and he stops, and he asks the man, what is it that you want to, me to do for you? 
And the man responds, I want to see. And there is the picture of faith that we reach out to Jesus as God's representative by which we're able to be healed from the maladies of this life and to be set right with God. Now, Luke does something that we, reminds me of what happens in Mark chapter 8, in which in Mark's gospel, what he does there is he takes a physical miracle and parallels it with what's happening spiritually. And I believe that's exactly what Luke does here as we're leading up to Zacchaeus' story, is that the one who reaches out to Jesus, the one who's able to heal, is able to have his sight restored. And so we have a physical miracle that lets us know what Jesus is able to do physically, he's about to do spiritually in the life of a person. And this person happens to be Zacchaeus. And so it's all those things that come to bear in the text of Zacchaeus. We need to see our our need for God's mercy and then depend on him like a small child because to depend on anyone else or anything else ultimately will make us miss the kingdom. And the only way to depend upon God's mercy in this case comes through what Jesus has done and by reaching out to him in faith. That's the way that one enters the kingdom of God. In light of all of that that's going to come to play in Zacchaeus' story, let me state my point up front. I have only one point. God's salvation helps us to be generous. God's salvation helps us to be generous. Now, for those who are Bible scholars in the room, you will know that there is an alternate way to interpret this text in light of the tense of the verbs in verse 8. I'm going to follow the, the traditional interpretation of this specific text. So we here find Jesus now in his earthly ministry at the end of his earthly ministry. It's not long before he will enter Jerusalem, and when he does, we know what he will do there. But right before he goes to Jerusalem, he passes through Jericho, just about 15 to 17 miles away from the capital city. And there happens to be a man in the city who, like the blind man, desperately wants to see. But he wants to see who Jesus is. Spiritual insight. We're not told the reason explicitly, but in light of the preceding text of what Luke has been building up in his argument, and now in light of the way that story concludes, we might surmise that what he's really after is exactly what the rich young ruler was after, eternal life, to enter the kingdom of God, salvation. And it might be because his heart had been convicted years earlier by the preaching of John the Baptist. We get that kind of idea from Luke chapter 3, verses 12 through 13. We no doubt know that he had heard about the ministry of Jesus because of all the commotion and the crowd, and because they knew something about Jesus, he probably shared the same knowledge as it was the talk around the town. But Zacchaeus has a problem. He's a social outcast. Despite all of his affluence, no one wants to relate to him. And the reason why is it has to do with his occupation. He's a tax collector. And tax collectors were viewed in the ancient world negatively. We kind of view some of them that way today. And the reason why is because of the way taxes worked out. So the way a tax collector earned his living during those days, he didn't get a paycheck. But the Roman government had taxes they wanted to collect. And so they hired people to do that. And in Palestine, it just so happens that they had hired, a, had a prefect who was responsible for getting someone to do that. And, and so what the tax collector would do is, in order to collect taxes, you didn't have a salary, so 
you wanted to collect the Roman taxes and there was an amount you had to collect. And then you would put a fee on top of that so that you could get money for yourself. And that's how you were paid. But you would tell the person just what the amount was, the amount of the tax plus your fee. And that's the amount they had to pay. In light of that, because there were layers of tax collectors, then what would happen is each person would add on their fee so that when it came to the person at the end, you would have the fee of the tax collector who was at the lowest, the one who was above him, and then the tax that you had to pay. Now, the problem was in that world, the government did not regulate what was going on. And so you could change the fee to whatever you wanted to if you were a tax collector to be able to enrich yourself. And this then, of course, caused people to view tax collectors as thieves. And from what we know from the ancient world, there was a lot of overtaxation that happened because people were trying to maximize wealth coming to them. And if you were a thief, then you broke a command of God to not steal. And if you broke a command, then you are a sinner. And the Jews had a really bad tax predicament going on because they were doubly taxed. Not only did they have to pay the Roman taxes, but they had all of the taxes that the Old Testament prescribed that they had to pay as well. And so in light of that, they were in a very bad position. They also viewed the Romans as oppressors. And so that meant that if you as a Jew helped the Romans get money, then you were a traitor. You were a sellout. And so they didn't view tax collectors well. So, excuse me, some say that it was estimated that direct sales tax on the movement of goods during that time, if we were to estimate it, it was probably at 12.5%. In addition to that, there were all the other taxes that you had to pay, and you might have to pay tax in one city, then go to another city because there was no receipt that said that you paid taxes before. They may try to charge you taxes over here. So you might have to pay. So when all the taxes were added up, the annual income is estimated, the tax on annual income was about 40%. It could go as high as 40% of your income. So you can imagine why people were not happy about tax collectors. And it wasn't just Jews who didn't like them. Everybody didn't like them because they were collecting money this way. So here in the text, we have another wealthy ruler, like the one before, smaller stature here in height, not age, who's seeking Jesus of eternal life, and he's despised by people. And the question will be, what will be the outcome this time? We've already seen where one had the opportunity, but his wealth kept him, kept him from accepting the opportunity for eternal life. What will be the play out in this one where Luke has already set us up for it with the parable that he told at the beginning? We're dealing with the tax collector. And Zacchaeus desires to see Jesus, but the crowd is preventing him. Perhaps they even did it intentionally. Perhaps the crowd felt like, look, man, you've taken so much advantage of us. You've always put yourself first. This is one time in life you don't get to be first. You've taken our money. You stole from us. Uh, you're not going to get to be next to God's prophet. You don't get to see God's prophet. That's a no-no for you. You stay away. You're a bad guy. You don't get to be close to Jesus. That's not what's going to happen. So what Zacchaeus does, which gives us a picture of faith, just like with the blind man, he comes up with an alternate solution. He will not allow the crowd to keep him from Jesus. So what does he do? He does what is unfitting for someone of his stature in society. He runs ahead and climbs a sycamore tree. And I can understand what that's like. I know what it's like to be short and have to go get help. To get, to get things in your house. I have to get little ladders out when I want to reach the top cabinets. And I can understand what it's like to climb a tree. I know what that's like from my childhood. But what I don't know what it's like is what it must have been like when Jesus stopped under the tree and looked him in the eyes. 
What must it have felt like for the first time in your life to be valued by someone who's close to God? To be looked at and treated as a person who could be accepted by God. See, no one in the crowds would have picked, no one in the crowd would have picked Zacchaeus. And that's what I think rocked their world. The fact that Jesus did. And he not only picked Zacchaeus, but he offered him an opportunity to have a relationship that's pictured by the meal and staying at his house. And Zacchaeus acts different than the rich young ruler. Notice in the text what it says. He responds with joy and acceptance. And the people notice their response. They're not happy about Jesus' choice. See, there was a thought in the day that was kind of like this. If you go to eat with a guy who stole money from me, then you're participating in his sin. He stole the money. He bought the food. Now you're eating the food, bought with the stolen money that he took from me. So you're kind of helping him out. So that was kind of the idea of going on. So they're frustrated about Jesus choosing to eat with Zacchaeus. But Zacchaeus' evidence is something they do not expect, a changed heart. Like the woman last week, Zacchaeus probably did never expected that God would be willing to accept someone like him. But Jesus changes all of that. Have you ever been in a relationship with someone? And when you got into that relationship, because of your care for them and because of their care for you, it started to affect things in your life? There were certain things you started doing that you did not do before. And there were other things that you had been doing that you decided because of that relationship, you just don't do them anymore. And so you stopped. The same thing happens in our relationship with God. It changes us. In his book, Philip Yancey tells a story of a friend of his who was born in the late 1800s. She lived in her childhood in the early 1900s. And she told him the story about what it was like for her growing up. She had grown up in Chicago in a working family in a home where her father was extremely abusive because he had been an alcoholic. And he was so abusive that ultimately uh, it tore down his marriage and he forced his wife to leave the home and they had 10 kids. You can imagine the grief in the home with the children as the only advocate that that they had in the home walked down the street with her bags packed because the father had made her leave because of his addiction in his life. As time passed, the children slowly moved away. The other relatives, some went to live with the mother, and only one child ultimately ended up staying with him. But as they got older, they basically cut ties with the father because of the abuse that had happened in the home. And they started their own lives. Some went to the military. Others got jobs and decided to just put the past behind him and forget that he ever existed. And so years passed. The father disappeared. Because of his addiction, he ultimately lost his employment and ended up homeless on the streets. And there he would live his life for a number of years. But when he resurfaced in his children's lives many years later, he was different. He wasn't the same man that they remembered. Something had changed in his life. And he began to explain that at some point during those years when he was out on the streets and homeless and and drunk and addicted to alcohol, that one night it was cold. I'm guessing it was the, the winter time in Chicago. And because it was so cold, he was hungry and he had no money to provide for himself. There was a rescue mission, a Salvation Army. And he decided to wander into this particular rescue mission, hoping to find some food. And they were willing to offer food to him. But they said in order to be able to receive the free meal ticket and to receive the food that we want to provide for you, we simply just ask you to attend a worship service first. 
And so to get a free meal, he thought, not a big deal. I'd go to this worship service, and so he did. He went to the worship service. And there that night, the minister shared the gospel of Jesus Christ. And at the end, asked, was anyone interested in accepting Jesus into their life? And so a few of his buddies and him decided to go up front. And he thought to himself, it's only polite that if the guy's going to feed me, I can at least go up and accept his invitation, right? And so he went up to the front and the pastor led them in prayer to pray to receive Christ into their life and that God would change them. And so he thought, oh, well, I'll just pray this prayer. That sounds like a good idea. I'll do that. And then I get some free food. Not a bad idea. What he did not expect was that God would respond. And so God did. God changed him. The way he described it was like this. He said, all of a sudden, in response to that prayer, when he prayed, all of the demons that had been torturing him in his life, those inner things, quieted down. And for the first time in his life, he felt love and acceptance. He felt clean. And as a result of that change of heart, his life changed. He was no longer addicted and gave up alcohol. He started studying the Bible and started praying, and his life radically changed. And as a result of that changed heart and that changed life, it became clear to him as he reflected on his past life and the kind of man he had been, that he had been a dreadful man to his children. And because that had happened and because of his changed heart, he wanted to set things right. So each of his children, who now were adults and had their own families and their own children that that they were raising, he sought them out one by one, all of his ten children. And he sat at each house. And he said to his children, I want to ask you for forgiveness. I have done a dreadful thing to you. I can never repay you or undo the wrong that I did to you as a child and had not been a good father. All I can do is ask for mercy and for you to forgive me for my sins. Some children parted him, but there were others who refused to accept him. But the fact is, he was a changed man. And in this case, we have something similar happening with Zacchaeus. The people that rejected him, they didn't want to have a relationship with him, but Jesus was willing to accept him because God was willing to extend mercy. And as Paul said, God's kindness is what brings men to repentance. The people saw him only as a sinner, but Zacchaeus said, I'm a sinner no longer. My life has changed. Verse 8. Notice what the text says. As Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And in light of what Luke has already said, we now see God do what is impossible for men to do. He saves someone who seems unsavable. Now, why is it that Zacchaeus is able to be generous when the rich young ruler who was in a similar circumstance was not? And I believe it's because of the parable which we've already read. One was confident in his own righteousness, and his heart was tied to his possessions. Zacchaeus, in a different way, had no confidence in any righteousness that he had, and thus was able to shift his dependence from the things of this world to God, just like a child. See, whenever our heart is dependent on this world's possessions or confident in our own righteousness because we have some level of morality in our life or we do some church activities, it ultimately will not allow us to enter the kingdom. And because when our heart becomes attached to these possessions, then when we're challenged to give those possessions up in service of God, because our hearts are holding them, we won't relinquish them. We'll hold on to them. But that's one of the things that changes in our relationships. 
when Jesus enters our life. He breaks the chain that holds us ties to this world's possession. And because he reattaches our heart from the things of this world to God by faith, then when those opportunities arise, we're able to freely part with them for the good of others. Because Jesus said in Matthew 6, our hearts begin to treasure true treasure, treasure in heaven, which is none other than God himself. And that's what we see in the text. What flows from a heart that has experienced God's grace of salvation? As we saw last week, it's thankfulness, and this week, it's generosity. That's what flows from a heart that has experienced God's gracious salvation through Jesus. Please notice in the text the type of giving that um, we would say Zacchaeus had presently resolved to do in that moment of encountering Jesus and all that transpired in that interaction with him. First, he decides to share his possessions with those in need, here described as the poor. And he says, I'm going to give up 50%. So if his assets were worth $5 million, he was going to take and sell $2.5 million and give that away to the poor. Then he would have the rest of it left. And by the standards of his day, he was considered to be generous. For even in the Jewish mindset in Judaism of the day, it was thought that if you gave up 20% of your possessions to the poor, then you were a generous person. Notice what Zacchaeus gives up, 50%. Not only does he do that, but he goes on to give in a way that we might not expect. He promises restitution. That is, for those whom he had wronged, and maybe he had those pictures of those people in his mind over the years, that when he was cutting the deal of taxes, he raised his profit margin a little bit more to take advantage of them. They were in his mind, and he remembered them. And he said, what I'll do is I'll go and find those people, and I'll pay them back. I'll give them back what was taken. But because God has changed my heart and freed me from my attachment to possessions, I won't take the lowest penalty of the law. I'll take the highest penalty. I won't take 20%. I'll take four times as much as having to pay back. I'm willing to take the stiffest penalty because my heart has been so changed. In response to this, Jesus announces something for the sake of restoration to the community. He says, this man has experienced God's salvation. God has done the impossible. He has saved a rich man. And his generosity is simply evidence of the changed life and a repentant heart that Zacchaeus had. And so generosity becomes another evidence of what a proper way is to respond to God's gracious salvation. Now, it could be at this moment that I could say to you, hey, God wants you to go home and sell all that you have and give it and become a disciple of Jesus. Some of us might begin to cringe as we start to think about getting on eBay and hocking all of our possessions. And that might cause us to, to become a little leery. But thankfully, the text does not put that upon us, but it does put something else upon us. And that is that the believer is expected to be a generous person. The believer is expected to be a generous person. Notice what Paul writes in the text. To Timothy, he says this as a pastor to teach people this. He says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides for us everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, and to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up for themselves treasure, treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. 
You can find a variety of verses throughout the New Testament here in Luke's Gospel, chapter 6, verse 38, 2 Corinthians, the 8th chapter and the 9th chapter, Galatians at the end of the letter in chapter 6, verses 6 through 10, Ephesians in chapter 4, where it talks about stealing, talks about a change in life, and as a result of that, becoming generous in 428, James chapter 2, verses 15 and 16, and 1 John chapter 3, verses 17 and 18, and we see this theme of generosity throughout the New Testament. That's not to mention all of the Old Testament verses that talk about God's people being generous. And so in light of all of what the Scripture says about what a proper relationship is with possessions in light of what God has done for us in salvation, how are you doing with your relationship with your money and possessions? Do others describe you or think of you as a generous person? Do you find yourself struggling when there's an opportunity, you follow that inward pull to not want to give? Do you find yourself coming up with reasons why not to give in that situation? If you're struggling, I simply want to encourage you. Sit down with the Word of God. Review what it says. Allow it to pass through your heart. And in the process, ask the Lord to take the Word of God by the Spirit and set you free from what your heart has become attached to so that you might value the Savior only and be willing to steward that which he's given to you and thus reflect his character of generosity. But there's something else in the text that speaks to us, and that is that Zacchaeus' desire to set things right in his relationships raises for us the idea of biblical restitution. And we saw that he was generous and even in restitution because he didn't take the lowest penalty but the highest penalty of the law. And so he said, I'm willing to restore back what I have taken. That either that was lost or stolen to the rightful owner. And we get a snapshot of how the Bible, at least in the Old Testament, feels about this in Psalm 37. Notice what the text says. The wicked borrows but does not pay back, but the righteous is generous and gives. And Paul picks up this theme as he talks about the idea of paying the government and officials, and all this kind of idea. And in that is this idea of restitution when he writes these words. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. One example might come to mind is simply this, that when we have something from someone else, and in our possession, while we hold what they have, it becomes damaged or we lose it, then the right thing to do as a believer is to restore that to them, something of equal value, to give them back, unless they forgive us for that debt. That would be what it would, it would mean to be righteous in this way. Now, let me close with an illustration that I was challenged with this week in my generosity that left me saying to myself, I still have a ways to go in my generosity towards others and ask the Lord to continue to help me to grow. I talked to a friend earlier this week. He did not know about the sermon. I never told him about it, about what I would be talking about this week in light of the text. He just was sharing with me a testimony so that we could both rejoice together about God's goodness and faithfulness in his life. I don't know if you remember from the Sermon on the Mount, there was a statement that Jesus made, and this is what he said in one part in the Sermon on the Mount. He said this, Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. So last year, for the entirety of last year, my friend made a vow in his heart towards God with his wife's approval that he would take this verse and apply it in his life 
in a most literal way. And so what he decided to do was that for the entirety of 2019, 2019 from January 1 to December 31st, what he would do is that he would say yes to everyone who asked of him. And so if he was passing along the street and he saw someone who happened to be standing there and they had a sign that said, please help, uh, need food, or whatever the sign might say, he would stop and he would give to them. And if he didn't have cash in his pocket at that moment, when he saw them, he would alter his route, find the nearest ATM, go to that ATM, take out money, go find that person and give them the money. If in the mail he received a, a request to support uh, a person going on a mission trip or do some effort, he would immediately say yes and write a check and send it to them. If there was a need that arose in church, which he heard about, that someone had a need in church, he would find that person and contribute to the need. Whenever an opportunity was brought across his path by God to give, he gave every occasion. Now, I began in my mind as he was talking about this, the numbers began to run through my mind. I thought about all the requests that come in my mail where people ask me for money or people call me on the phone and ask for money or I run into things and things are going on. I started to just rack up just on my occasion what it might look like in a month to, to, to live like that as I try to think about what it would be like to live like that. And I thought to myself, that could get pretty iffy on your finances because that could be a drain on them. You could get in some tight positions. And he said that there were some moments at which things got tight in their house financially. And in those moments when that happened, he became, uh, he, he was tempted to, to go back on his vow that he had made. And so what he did to resolve that tension that was in his heart, in light of his idea of what was going on, he went to God in prayer and said, Lord, I trust you, and I'm willing to continue down this path because I trust you, although I don't know how it's going to work out in the end. And over the year, there were some strange things that started to happen that he did not count on. So one day he went to the mailbox. And when he went to the mailbox, he pulled out the normal mail that they get in. And as he was reviewing and looking through various things that went on, bills that needed to be paid, there would be this letter that he had not expected that showed up. And he would open the letter. And in the letter, there would be something like this that would happen. Hey, brother, been thinking about you and your family lately. God put you on my heart. Don't know what's going on in your life? Just thought I would send you some financial support and there would be a check. That happened not just once, but several times throughout the year. He never made a need known. He didn't tell anybody else what he was doing. Just out of the blue, people were deciding to send him money. So when he got to the end of the year, he thought he would reflect on his vow and having now looked at all that had been given versus all that he had received. And when he tallied up the amount he had gave out versus the amount that he received in, the amount that he received in unexpectedly, unasked for, unrequested, trumped the amount that he had given. So that at the end of the year, what ultimately ended up happening was not, not that he had given, but that God had given through him to every need that had been, he had said yes to. It was not his generosity, it was God's generosity. So that it reminded me of what they used to say in some of my other churches when I was growing up. You can't beat God giving no matter how hard you try. 
And that was the evidence of the reality. He wanted to be generous because God is generous, but ultimately what he experienced was God's great generosity towards him. Brothers and sisters, the same thing is true for us. We've already experienced God's great generosity and salvation. And so when you come to have an opportunity to be generous, just remember what God has done for you, and in light of that, you can give freely to others. Let's pray. God, I thank you for the truth of your word and what you have done for us in Jesus Christ. And I thank you that there are these small reminders in our lives that let us know that we will never outdo you in acting like you. That our generosity will never surpass yours. And you never made any promises to him to to do that for him, but you taught him a lesson that now we're able to share with other believers. That you're able to do more than we could ever ask or think. And that you sovereignly run this world and that you are the one in charge of everything that happens. And so we have no need of fear, but to live like a child with trust and dependence upon you. God, would you help us to do that in our lives? Because we've received such a great gift through Jesus Christ, your son. Such an awesome gift of salvation. May we be able to display your generosity towards others as you present us with opportunities, with wisdom. We ask these things, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me? We'll sing a final song and dismiss you here in a moment.